Please turn with me to Romans chapter 2, verse 17 this morning. Begin in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Some of you will be able to relate to this uh, illustration, but when I was growing up, there were just three channels on TV. And uh, I remember what an incredible privilege it was just to get up, to stay up with my parents and watch TV. It didn't really matter what was on TV, but I enjoyed staying up and watching our little black and white TV. When you turn it off, a little dot would be there at the middle, so you'd get caught if you stayed up by yourself watching TV because I could see the dot. I just liked getting to stay up with my parents. And uh, I did have favorite shows. One of them was um, Perry Mason. Might be on Netflix for you who enjoy retro stuff and you've never seen Perry Mason. Perry Mason is the greatest lawyer who ever lived. Doesn't matter that uh, he wasn't a real person. Perry Mason was a great lawyer. And I remember even as a kid, I noticed uh, something about his show. And that was that the cases hardly ever went to the jury. For you older folks who watch this, you remember this. Cases didn't go to the jury because Perry Mason was such an amazing lawyer and he was so uh, insightful into human nature, into framing his arguments, that he would just pile on the evidence and he'd be piling on the evidence. And at the end of the show, the climax of the show was the defendant would be sitting in the, in the, in the box there, would stand up and go, I confess, I'm guilty. You know, it's just the, the power of Perry Mason's arguments would bring out the confession. It was wonderful. Or somebody maybe even just sitting there in the gallery would stand up and say, I confess. And it was always, he would just drive them to that point. And I love that about the show. Well, you know, that's what Paul is doing in Romans. Okay. Paul is structuring his argument like a lawyer and he's just piling on the evidence against immoral people, against self-righteous people. And now this morning against the Jews. And what he wants to have happen for each and every person is at the end of his argument, we all stand up and say, I'm guilty. I confess. I want to put Paul's argument again for you in context, because I hope that by the end of our discussion of Romans next year, you will know this book. You will know the flow of thought. You'll know the theme. It'll just be locked into your mind. So I want to repeat it for you. This is what the book is about. It's about the righteousness of God. And what that means is God is righteous in who he is and what he does. All that God is in his character, in his personality, is right. He is the standard and so he meets the standard. All that God does flows from his character and so it too is right. God is righteous. As the psalmist said, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Big idea of Romans is this. God has proven right by making all things right through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And we participate in that through faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God by saving all who believe. God is putting all things right. We want to participate in God putting all things right. Believe. Believe. This way of approaching God through faith and not through works, is going to permeate the entire book. Okay? Big idea. God has proven right by making all things right through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And the gospel itself reveals the righteousness of God by saving all who believe. Now, here's the flow of thought in Paul. He begins with an introduction in which he lays out this concept of, of salvation, which is very broad, God putting all things right, and then he puts it in terms of the gospel, 
revealing the righteousness of God. Okay? And then he's going to really begin to unpack verses 16 and 17 and his burden to get the gospel to all people. He's going to unpack that throughout the rest of the book. Five major sections here that we've got. First, God is righteous in judgment. We're coming to the end of that section this morning. God proves himself right by judging sin, all sin. Not being partial, not overlooking the sin of any. God is righteous also in justification. That is, he can judge sin and yet still be right in reaching out to sinful people and declaring them righteous because he's punished sin in Jesus. Justification by faith. But he doesn't just declare people righteous. He also, for those who believe, begins the process of making them righteous the moment that they believe. Through the power of God's spirit, that's sanctification. God is righteous in sanctification. God is also righteous in history. The Jews might argue, wait, we're the chosen people, but we seem to be outside of the plan of God. How can that be right? How is God faithful to his promises? So Paul will expound how God's movement in history through the Jews, through setting them aside and working through the Gentiles, through restoring the Jews, all of this is right and consistent with the promises of God. God's righteousness means that he's faithful to his promises. And then the final section, God is righteous through our lives. As God's people, transformed and becoming more and more like Christ, in our relationships and in our interaction with the world, we demonstrate the righteousness of God. Okay, that's the flow of thought. Now, to unpack this first section a little bit more, God is righteous in judgment. He begins in chapter 1, verse 18. This is really a synthesis or a preview of the whole section where he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. God reveals his righteousness by revealing his anger, his wrath against sin, all sin, of all people, no partiality. So, the Gentiles need the righteousness of God, and he breaks that down into two types of Gentiles, the immoral Gentile and then the self-righteous Gentile. Gentile who hears about God condemning immoral people and says, well, I'm glad that's not me, and God says, well, that is you, because you too have committed sin. Matt expounded on that last week. Then he'll move into the Jews' need for righteousness. We'll talk about that this morning. And then he'll culminate with this. All need the righteousness of God. Okay? He's going to wrap his arms around all of humanity and say we're all in the same boat. We all are in need of the righteousness of God. Something we can't get for ourselves, we can't earn for ourselves. The righteousness of God. So read with me, if you would, beginning in chapter 2, in verse 17, we will focus upon uh, the Jews this morning and then wrap up the whole section in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Chapter 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul begins by condemning the Jews in this section by actually first affirming a couple things about the Jews. First is this. The Jews were given greater revelation. Paul does not deny the fact that the Jews are in a privileged position in that they have received greater revelation. Notice verse 17. You bear the name Jew, you rely upon the law, literally, you rest upon the law, and you boast in God. Paul doesn't say that these are false boasts. 
Throughout the Old Testament, God would say to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be special to me and I will be special to you. We will have a unique and special relationship. Then he gives them the law and they say, you rest literally upon the law. That is, you recognize that God has given you a better way of life from any of the nations around you. Revealed in the law and he is your God. And then he goes on, he says, and you know his will and you approve the things that are essential or you, you discern the things that really matter. Being instructed out of the law. That is, you recognize God has given you a better way of life and you know the things that matter to God. Things that are important to God, the things that are not important to God. And Paul affirms this. Because you've been given the law and a special relationship with God, this is true of you. You have been given greater revelation. As a result, you've also been given greater responsibility. Verse 19, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You remember in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his audience, you are the light of the world. Who is he speaking to? Speaking to Jews. I think there's application, certainly, to the church, and we'll talk about that later. But he's speaking to the Jews, and he says, you are the light of the world. That was a very common conception among the Jewish people. We are the light of the world. God has chosen us and given us greater responsibility. Even to this day, you can read Jewish writers who are religious and also those who are secular, who see the Jews as existing in the world to elevate the rest of humanity, to move them uh, closer to the ideal human or closer to God if they're more religious. Okay? It's affirmed throughout the Old Testament. Jesus affirms that you're the light of the world. Now, specifically, what was their commission? I want you to turn back with me all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, keep your place here in Romans. We'll be back there in just a moment. But move back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why did God create mankind? To rule over all of his creation on his behalf. To rule under the dominion of God over all of creation. All plants and animals and all the created world. God made one creature in his image to represent him and to rule on his behalf. You know, the next event that happens, though, after God commissions mankind is the fall. Everything begins to break down. Adam and Eve sin. They're moved out of the presence of God. No longer are they locked in spiritually with God. Their spirit is not united to the spirit of God. Being away from his presence, they can't hear his voice as clearly. And as a result, it is more and more and more difficult for them to represent him, to fulfill their commission. And so what happens is mankind becomes more and more and more sinful, moving further away from God. Turn to chapter 6, verse 5. 
It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Mankind is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And God says, maybe I should just wipe him out and start all over. But instead, he finds Noah, a righteous man. Among all mankind that lives on the earth, he finds one. He says, let me start over. And he selects Noah. He destroys the rest of mankind and animals. Saves Noah, a seed through which he can begin again. Noah comes out of the ark and almost immediately... Uh, One of Noah's sons sins, and that line becomes more and more and more sinful. And again, mankind plunges into evil. Turn with me to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And hopefully you remember that the commission was, be scattered and make a name for me. Instead, they built high into the heavens and say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us not be scattered. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And God goes down and he confuses their language so that their evil cannot grow worse, scatters them throughout the face of the earth. And rather than wiping all of humanity out because he promised Noah that he would not do that, and because he made a statement in Genesis 1 that he would rule over mankind and all of creation through mankind, he says, I won't start over, but what I will do is I'll select one man in his family, and through him, I will restore blessing to the earth. Okay, through that one, I will set all things right. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the point of that blessing becomes unpacked as we go through Scripture. And it is to set all things right and to do it through Abraham's family. So in a couple weeks we'll look at Romans chapter 4 where Paul fully develops this thought. Right in the middle of that chapter... Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Notice the commission, that he would be heir to the world. So that through Abraham's seed, God would fulfill the promise to rule over all of mankind and all of creation through mankind. And so he chose Abraham and Abraham's family. That is one of the reasons that he gave them the law so that they could live in a way that was consistent with the character of the law, so the nations could see God in them and in the way that they lived. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
in verse 5. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5. This is Moses speaking. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus and live in the land where you are entering in to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this is a great nation, a nation that is wise and an understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? The law is righteousness and you live according to it. The nations look in and they say, what a wonderful God they must have that delivered to them this law. And as a result, the entire nation of them living according to the law would become a kingdom of priests. That is, they would be the mediators of the blessings of God to all of humanity. That is why God chose the Jews. To mediate the blessings of God to all of humanity. Now, let me draw a couple of principles out of this. The first is this. Doing right is righteousness. Not knowing what is right or telling other people what is right, but doing right. Doing righteousness from the heart for the honor and glory of God. That's righteousness. Now, apparently, uh, one of our members was reading ahead and sent me this greeting card. May your boss not attend the synagogue you pretend to be going to during the Jewish holidays. (laughs) It's not enough to know what's right and then fail to do it and say you're righteous. Or to know what's right and to tell others but fail to do it. That's not righteousness. Righteousness is doing what's right. Matt began to expound this. Turn back to Romans chapter 2 and verse 13. In Paul's message to the Gentiles, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not those who just hear the law, but those who do the law. And if you recall, if you were here last week when Matt was preaching, he made the point that Paul is setting up here something that is actually impossible to achieve because no one will perfectly do the law from the heart for the honor and glory of God. They may obey externally certain aspects of the law, but the internal requirements, they just won't happen. There's no person who will fully obey. That is why God must find a human a man who will fully obey because he has promised to rule over all of his creation through mankind. So he must find one. That's a seed, that's a hint to us all the way back in Genesis chapter one that there will be a God-man because only God can perfectly reflect the character of God but God has promised to rule over all of creation through mankind. There must be a God-man who will actually live perfectly in righteousness. Paul goes on to expound this thought in Romans chapter 2 in the section on the Jews, verse 21. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And then he's going to give three illustrations of teaching something but not doing it. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, 
What you should notice here is that he's making an allusion to the Ten Commandments. He's making an allusion to Commandment 8, Commandment 7, and probably Commandments 1 and 2. So he's going to the very heart of the law. These are really serious sins. Uh, You who steal, uh, you who commit adultery, you who uh, abhor idols. The first two are pretty obvious. If you say don't steal, then you shouldn't steal yourself. If you say don't commit adultery, you shouldn't commit adultery yourself. But this last one is a little confusing. Uh, You who abhor idols, the first and second commandments, have no other God before me, don't make a graven image. Understand that commandment. But what does it mean to rob temples? Well, apparently, some Jews in Paul's day, because they understood uh, from the word of God that idols are nothing, right? There are no other gods but God, so idols are false things, would actually take idols from uh, shops and stores or temples and they would uh, take the gold and the silver off those idols or the jewels off those idols and enrich themselves. They would steal. They would rob temples. Because idols aren't anything, so we are immune from any kind of moral uh, ethic when we steal them. Okay? Very rare. And what's interesting about these sins is, in fact, among the Jewish community, all three of these that he points out are various serious sins, but really rare. Okay, why did Paul pick these three? Very serious sins, but very rare sins. Okay, this is key to understanding this section in Romans. Paul is not trying to make the point that Jews have sinned. That was an easy argument to make. Just read the prophets, right? Paul is not simply trying to make the point that Jews have sinned. The point he is making is that the Jews have disqualified themselves from being the light of the world. Okay? The Jews saw themselves as the solution ultimately to the world's problems. We are the solution. So, are you confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of all truth? Because you possess the law, you're the light of the world and you can set all things right. And Paul's saying, no, you can't set all, the, all things right because as a nation... There is sin in you, so you're actually part of the problem. You're not the solution. He's not simply trying to make the point that Jews have sin. He's he's making the point that the Jews are disqualified from the role of mediating all of God's blessings because as a nation, there is sin. They have been corrupted. They have sinned as well. That's the point that Paul is making. So their boast is an empty boast. They are not the solution. They're part of the problem. Second principle. Unrighteousness results in disqualification. Unrighteousness results in disqualification. Look with me in verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. When Israel sinned and then they were sent among the nations... The prophet said, everywhere that you went, you took my name with you and you said, we are the Lord's people. But as a result of the way that you lived, even in exile, you brought blasphemy to my name. First of all, they said, I guess God was not powerful because he couldn't keep his people in their own land and they were exiled. Second, because of the sins that you committed, you lived just like the nations around you. You were not different. Uh, Everyone within you, no, there were some righteous, but there were also some who were unrighteous and sinful. And as a result, my name was drugged down and I was no greater than just a common God. 
And so God said, as a result, I'm going to act on behalf of my name in spite of all of your sins, but you will be disqualified from being the light of the world. Third principle, greater revelation results in greater accountability. To whom much is given, much will be required. These three are all timeless principles. To whom much is given, much will be required. Greater revelation means greater accountability. James will say, let not many of you be teachers, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. That verse scares me to death. (laughs) Greater revelation means greater accountability. It's a timeless principle. It's true for all of us. When a political leader fails, we become cynical about the political system, don't we? When an athlete fails, it becomes so common we say, ah, typical. When a Christian fails, it's tragedy because they associate the name of Christ with the Christian. And that's a travesty. Apostle Paul would save himself. I buffet my body, I make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself would be disqualified. Paul is not saying that he fears the loss of his salvation. What he's saying is, I fear the loss of the opportunity to be a mediator of the blessings of God to the rest of mankind. I want to be light to the world, and I don't want to be disqualified. So I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest possibly after I've told others, you shouldn't do this, but you should do this. But then I go and I do the same. I myself would be disqualified. Paul says, I don't want to stand before the evaluation of Jesus Christ as a Christian securing my salvation, but I don't want to stand there before Christ and say, I didn't live like you, Jesus. Instead, I live like the rest of the world. And as a result, people look down on the name of Christ because of me. Believers in Jesus Christ. We should live like Christ. We should live like Christ. Now this is bonus, okay? This is not uh, Romans chapter 2. Let me just throw out a little little, uh, bonus material for us this morning here. Christians, we should confront sin in one another. I have too many times to count heard Christians say, we should never judge, we should never judge, we should never judge. Okay? That's a silly statement. We shouldn't judge the world because it's not our job to determine who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That is in God's hands. Paul tells us explicitly, though, within the family of God, we should judge. Not according to our standards of righteousness that are man-made or culturally created, but according to biblical standards. When we see sin, what is clearly sin in one another, we should call it sin. And Paul actually gives very explicit instructions how to do that. He says, when you do it, be very gentle and look to yourself first so that you also won't be tempted in exactly the same way. But then step into one another's lives and call sin, sin. In gentleness, in humility, in reverence for God and in respect for the person, but call sin, sin. Within the family of God, we have a responsibility to one another to push one another and urge one another toward holy living so that we can accurately represent the very character and nature of God. And if you don't have any friends that are close enough in your life that they can see something in your life and call it sin, then you are not fully participating in the body of Christ. That's what we're here for in the lives of one another. 
If you don't have a friend that you're close enough to that you could point out sin, then you're not a good enough friend yet. In Proverbs, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We need friends who will be so faithful that they will wound us when we sin. Because we don't want to get to the end of our lives and stand before Jesus Christ. And he looks at our lives and says, you know, you you didn't look anything like me. But I created you so that you could have the blessing of passing on the blessings of my very nature and character and the work that I did on the cross. That's why I made you. Don't miss out. Okay, that was a freebie. Let's go back to Romans. Third point Paul's going to make here. The Jews are given greater revelation. They were given greater responsibility. But the Jews were trusting in ritual, not in reality. Look at me in chapter 2, verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And if he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Paul is saying, you're trusting in the rite, the ritual, the outward thing without the inward reality. Even as Christians, we do that today sometimes. What are, what are the rituals in which we trust? I've had many conversations with people where they'll come into my office and, and I'll ask them, tell me your testimony. Tell me how you, you came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And some will say, well, I've always been in one. I, I, was, I was born a Christian. I was, I was born in a Christian home. I was raised in the church. Uh, I was baptized as an infant, or I was baptized at eight. I was in Awana. I was in the choir. I went to camp. I walked the aisle, and when I walked the aisle, I said the prayer. I prayed the prayer. There's everything about me that's Christian. All all ritual, all external. But if I ask them to explain the gospel, they cannot clearly explain the gospel, which is Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. Because I believe in him. God doesn't credit my sin against me. He credited it to Christ and credits Christ's righteousness to me. He transfers that. So by grace, I've been saved through faith. It's not me. It's a gift of God. And I possess eternal life. I have it forever because I believe in Jesus Christ. Rarely can they say that. It's all external. Okay, but that's the gospel. The gospel gets to the heart of the matter. It's not ritual. It's not right. It's faith in the work of Christ and in that work alone. And the moment that you trust that, you have life forever. And I would encourage you, if you've never, for the first time, said, God, I believe. I believe that you gave me Jesus. I trust in him. I encourage you, right where you're sitting this morning, to believe. Not in your baptism, not in church attendance, not in the way that you were raised or being in a Christian home or being living in a Christian culture as we do today, but simply in the work of Christ. Okay? Once people trust Christ, though, unfortunately, we also often resort to rituals rather than reality. Okay, let me give you just a simple illustration. The phenomenon of a Christian t-shirt. Uh, I don't believe in the Home Depot. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I love these t-shirts that are takeoffs of uh, common cultural icons. I may not recycle well, but I have been reborn, redeemed, restored, renewed. Uh, or one of my favorites, Jesus, sweet Savior, King of Kings. I may be living like hell, but I've got the shirt. I'm, I'm in the club, right? My all-time favorite. 
you can show that you're not only a Christian, but you're loyal to your school. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked. Um, you know what? If you're living like hell, don't wear the shirt. I'll tell you a story. I, one time, a couple of years ago, I went into Gold's gym to work out. And there was a college student in there, and he was wearing a Christian t-shirt. He was also wearing a ball cap. It said, porn star. Not making this up. Now, I promise, usually I can just let it alone, right? Right? Usually, I, it's a stranger, you know. But I kept working out, you know, 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I mean, I, I'm just, it's just eating me. You know, and, and finally, I just walked up to the guy. I go, hey. He goes, hey. What's up? What's up? <laughs> saw you were wearing a Christian t-shirt. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I also saw you were wearing a hat that says porn star. He goes, yeah. I said, which is it? <laughs> Just don't, that don't seem like consistent messages to me. You know, if you're wearing the Christian t-shirt, you're saying, I'm a follower of Christ. and I don't think Jesus would wear that hat. I don't think that's consistent with a testimony of who Christ is. And he just stared at me. He didn't see any incongruity with the t-shirt and the hat. I'm like, wow. Glad I said something anyway, because I just had to get it off my chest. You know, I will say I never saw him show up again with the shirt and the hat at the same time. Paul's point is this. Circumcision has value. If it's simply reflecting the internal reality, okay? The internal reality for the Jew was, I believe God's promises to Abraham that he will provide a seed, generations that will come from Abraham and somewhere in those generations, God will raise up one who will set all things right. I believe in that and I want my child to participate in that when it happens. The problem was for the Jews that they got so into the ritual that they forgot the reality behind it. There was an external symbol of faith, but not faith itself. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. That is, what matters is an inner reality that is reflected in the way that we live our lives. That's all that really matters. The symbol is just a symbol. If it reflects that reality and you want to wear it, great. Whether it's circumcision or a t-shirt. I don't really have anything against Christian t-shirts. No kidding. Even though I used it as an illustration made fun of it, I don't care. Because t-shirts are nothing and no t-shirts are nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God, a life that is consistent internally with what's happening externally. Paul says the problem that's happening in the Jewish nation is there is no internal reality. So the Jews were trusting in ritual and not in reality. So in fact, Paul would go on to say, there may be Gentiles who are living according to the convictions of their conscience that God has written some of the law on their hearts, they are in more of a position to represent me than the Jews. Wow, that was shocking to a Jewish audience. He says, Jews, you have disqualified yourself, and now God is moving through Gentiles, and they may even be more qualified. And then he goes on, verse 28, For he who is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that, that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. 
And his praise is not from men who just see externally, but his praise is from God. Paul's point is not that Gentiles are Jews. That is a contradiction in terms. What he is saying is God has always worked through a small remnant. The true Jew is the one who is ethnically Jewish, but also has the reality inwardly. So the logical conclusion would be this. I guess there's no value in being a Jew. And Paul says, no, 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 not so fast. Because God made a promise that he would work through the Jews and restore all of creation. And if he doesn't do it through the Jews, then God's promises have been broken. There is great value in being a Jew. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Based on his argument, you might say absolutely none. He says, no, no. Actually, it's great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. There is great value in being a descendant of Abraham. Why? Because they had greater revelation. That is a blessing. Verse 3, what then? My translation says, if some did not believe, you should scratch that out and it should read like this. If some some were unfaithful, their unfaithfulness will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That is, God is always right. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul says, no, let me vindicate God. There is great value in being a descendant of Abraham, and human failure does not invalidate God's promises. Okay, true of us too. Every one of us is going to sin. We will all fail. That doesn't invalidate the promises of God. It reminds us that he alone is ultimately the only one who's perfectly faithful. Third, don't even think about shifting the blame to God. That's human nature. It's what we do, but it's not legit. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what should we say then? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms here. May it never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? Second hypothetical objection, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we slanderously are reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, Their condemnation is just. Paul says, right now I'm not even going to answer that because it is absolutely so ridiculous. That you would blame God for your sin just because he takes your sin and he creates a demonstration of his own righteousness through your sin. Now he will answer it a little more thoroughly in chapter 3 and then in chapter 6 through 8. Right now he says, I don't have time for that right now. God is vindicated. Let God be found true. Though every man be found a liar, every person that's ever existed may be lying, but there's one who's true, and it is God. Now, finally, he's going to wrap up his whole argument here. And this is where the law court comes back in. There's going to be a charge, proof, demonstration of the charge, and then a verdict. The charge is this, and we don't have time to go into all of it, so you can read it later on this week. The charge is this, all are unrighteous. No one's qualified to represent God. The proof is that every component of man's personality, the mind, the will, as well as the actions, are all sinful and turned away from God. The verdict, no one is righteous. Conclusion, all are in need of the righteousness of God. Now, that's the conclusion of a really dark section. We spent four weeks on it, and I'm really excited to move on next week to justification. 
Okay, but before we leave this, I want to make a couple points of application. First is this. Is humanity inherently whole or are we broken? Is humanity inherently sinful and in need or inherently good? This week I was uh, reading a Jewish author. Uh, His name is Yaakov Astor, and he said this. The Talmud teaches all Israel have a portion in the world to come. That is, a person is destined for the place of true reward unless he or she does something to lose it. In other words, humanity is basically good and we're all marching toward heaven unless we do something to really screw it up. Apostle Paul says, no, it's exactly the opposite. All of humanity is marching toward an an eternal destiny separated from God unless they turn to God and say, God, rescue me, a sinner. I am broken just like every person is broken. I am in need of your forgiveness. I am in need of being set right by you. And the way that you've done that is only through your son, Jesus Christ. All of humanity is broken, even though our culture will say everything's good. Our God is astonishing. Okay, this section really is about the character of God. God's always right. God always acts rightly. He always acts righteously. He never acts wrongly. He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't break his promises. And because he has promised to restore all things, even though we are absolutely, completely, and desperately broken, God in his power steps in and gives us an offer of becoming whole. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we close. Let's just take a moment quietly to thank God for the gospel of Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess the truth of the statement that we are sinners. And that our only hope rests in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I, we, we are so thankful this morning that you sent him to rescue us and that he took on himself all the pain and the suffering, the burden for the sins of, of every man and every woman and every child for all of history. What an incredibly great and generous act. Father, we worship you today through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.